Welcome to the Sum of It All Curious Schools podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague, Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education, and we're glad to be with you today. This season, we're exploring the book, Building a Curious School, Restore the Joy That Brought You to School by Brian Goodwin. And today we're discussing part three, Curiosity in School Communities, covering chapters seven through nine. Transcripts to our podcasts are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. So let's dive in, Mark. The chapter begins with when teams lose their curiosity, and it's mm. all about what's broken, what's not working, why have we lost curiosity in our schools and in our world? And you know, one of the first points they bring up is something that you've mentioned before in previous podcasts, which is that we, we get to this point of believing that our past performance predicts our future success. Um, and they mentioned, you know, this that fits in with Colin's work, thinking that the um, that the hubris born of success is that we're doing just fine. If we just keep doing what we're doing, mm. we're going to keep being fine. Um, mm. And that we don't often stop and ask questions. We don't pose that curiosity um, that it's not born into like how we're doing things that instead of asking what's working, why is it working? What conditions will it continue working or even stop working that we're just in that mindset of like, things are okay. Just let them keep going. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good thing to bring out, Audrey. You know, the author uses this, uh, the phrase of we, mirrors and windows as a way to think about uh, this whole work. And, you know, sometimes I think we look through a window and we view of the success of our students um, based on external factors. So we think about all these reasons why they may not be achieving and why we don't have this curiosity and why students are just not succeeding. And I think we look at that through a window sometimes as this is this thing that's an external thing that's out of my control. But I really appreciate how the author brings in this idea of the mirror and how if I'm looking in the mirror and examining how I might improve my practice to support my students, there's just a complete different perspective of examining my practice and how it might support my students versus thinking of all the reasons that are exterior that that I think might be causing my students to have barriers. You know, I think that's critical is getting it really personal and taking ownership of it very quickly um, and using that mirror to look back at ourselves individually um, instead of always viewing education as this big thing. Um, you know, I think as a system, I mean, every student in the United States, every student in your county, every student in your district, that just feels huge. And we get into these group think set scenarios of like, well, there's a group of educators responsible for this decision. Um, and, and, you know, all the research shows that when we get into group scenarios, like our ability to push back against what's happening, our ability to think creative, creatively or outside of the box, all diminishes with this desire to just stay with the flow. And mm -hmm. so I think you're right. I think this idea of switching from looking outward and thinking of the massive system of it or pushing blame on someone else, it's really important to turn that mirror around um, and get really personal with it and think about and think about it. Makes sense. Um, Audrey, what, what connections are you making with, with this set of chapters that we tackled this week? You know, they had some interesting ideas around questions to ask if you're hiring people. And I'm, I'm not in a position to hire people regularly, but I think the questions are broader than that. Um, and they might actually be really interesting just to consider either individually or with a small PLC or with a group of um, friends um, to kind of gauge your own level of curiosity. 
And so like one was um, just asking, what, did, what have you done to broaden your thinking experience or personal development recently? And when you think about how you might answer that question, like a curious individuals might share someone, share something that sounds, um, you know, like a wondering, like, uh, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm trying to explore it. Or if you ask a question about what steps have you taken to seek out the unknown, um, that you're pushing this, you know, pushing on someone to, to react with what does it mean or feel like to, to not know the answer. Um, and you can know, just imagine the incurious versus the curious's response to that. So I found those questions to be kind of interesting as, as a place mm -hmm. of uh, maybe sparking some conversation among colleagues about curiosity. Yeah, Audrey, you know, when I was at a job interview once, uh, the, the interviewer asked me what, what book I had read recently um, about my practice. And I thought that was, that was really interesting. And now that I think back to that, I, I connect to that third bullet that we have is that third question, what have you been curious about over the past few months? And I'm thinking about how the books that we choose to read might be things that we, that we might be curious about. And I think that's, that's a great way to start um, gauging that level of curiosity we might have as professionals. And to that end, I, I found that idea that, you know, the opportunity that teachers are provided to be curious as a way to engage in their workplace. You know, the author talks about how that, that, that prov providing of curiosity as part of the environment of the workplace and how that can be something that really helps the teacher stay at that particular school or district. And I thought that that was so fascinating um, and how that, that actually might uh, allow them to grow professionally, but actually just, just that, I'm just thinking of that level of happiness and joy that you yeah. would experience, right, Audrey? Yeah, I think that's what immediately comes to mind when you say that is I'm thinking about being bored and there's like nothing worse yeah. than being bored with your job, right? And I think as teachers, we thrive on the fact that there's different students either every period of the day or every mm -hmm. year, right? That, right? that there's uh, unique individuals to appreciate and to care for and to work with that anything that starts to feel mundane and monotonous mm -hmm. and boring, mm -hmm. like when all the curiosity is gone, then I think you lose a, a lot of the spark and love and joy that's in teaching and education. Yeah, that, that's so true. And, you know, as I look back on my career and, and think about the different things that were new learning, like every five to seven years, it seems like in some cases, I, I engage in some other type of activity that was a bit of a renewal for me as an educator. Um, and I thought about it I think I've always thought about it as just new learning, like things that I was learning more about. But you know, I'm actually thinking about it a little differently now after reading these chapters is that I think it was almost like curiosity that I was engaging in, that I was finding out more about uh, ways to be better at my craft. And so um, I really appreciate this idea of curiosity and I'm really thinking about it differently. And I'm, I'm really excited about how we can do more for teachers on school sites to help them be more curious and be in the driver's seat of their curiosity. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that, Mark, because as you said that, I was like, oh yeah, you know, when I've gone to a conference, right? Um, and that's why I feel rejuvenated afterwards is that my mm. mind is sparked with interesting wonderings of like, would mm. that work in my classroom? Or could I take this back, right? Um, and that there's been other opportunities. I know you've talked in previous episodes and series where um, to be involved with teachers that you're not on your school site, right? To kind of get out of the bubble of your right. own little system and work with people in other systems and say like, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. Or you bring to, you know, light different ideas. Um, mm -hmm. So that space of making opportunity for curiosity is really 
um, valuable. It makes me think too, Mark, about what we're doing inside of math education right now in terms of opportunities for curiosity. And I think one of the things that's kind of been at least locally, a little bit of a trend has been this idea of embracing mistakes. And we've heard a lot of people saying like, we love mistakes, mistakes are welcome here. Um, and I think to some extent, like we might miss the mark sometimes when we say that, um, that we might miss the point of all of that, like why are mistakes valuable? Um, and that it's not just about like, hey, if you make a mistake, your brain's growing. Like I, I've heard people say, you know, like neurons <laughs> are firing, things are happening inside, yep. but like just making the mistake doesn't have, cause that to happen. So when you realize it's a mistake, right? Like when you get pushed up against of like, oh wait, that wasn't right. That's when your brain starts doing something crazy and yeah. learning from it. Right. And I think that um, this chapter, you know, they bring out, the author brings out this point around like errors are when you make mistakes repeatedly. And that's what we're trying to avoid. Like mm -hmm. that means you didn't learn from them. You are just continuing right. to make the same error over and over again. But that if you instead can embrace the mistakes part that I, something went wrong and what can we learn from that? that that's a place for curiosity to kind of be fostered. Yeah, that's super great. I, I, I think that's really cool. You cleared that up a little bit, Audrey, about errors. That's, that's great. Um, you know, the other part of that section that, that was really interesting in terms of an opportunity for curiosity is as the author mentions the idea of using data. And, you know, I have to say, Audrey, when I, when I saw this right at first, the idea of data and curiosity, I, especially my mind went to sort of that first staff meeting of the year with getting the standardized test scores. And I'm, I have to admit, I, I'm not sure there was a tremendous amount of curiosity in that moment. <laughs> yeah, <not laughs> so, much. Uh, you know, but then the author, uh, you know, mentions this idea that we should really expand our, our view of data. And uh, the author mentions specifically small data, such as checks for understanding, conversations with students, and so forth. And I love this quote on page 89, tiny clues about how students learn. I just think that's just, I, I love how it says tiny <laughs> because I think we, you know, we have all these sort of macro ways that we say, these are the ways that I have to give these tests to see how everyone's doing. Um, and you know, what's made me think about in reading this book is like, are we, when do we have a tiny clue that's based on an instance where students don't study or prepare for it. In other words, is all of our assessment that we've done and that we're doing to kids, is that, is that only based on when kids are supposed to study or prepare for something? And, you know, it's made me think of other instances when we learn something like learn to kick a soccer ball or build a table. I mean, it's that feedback along the way while I'm doing it that helps me make those improvements that you just talked about um, as I'm correcting my thinking. And so um, I just think that really framing things as a curiosity, as an educator, that completely transforms how I look at data because it makes me think about, um, is it something that I'm curious? I want to figure out what makes my students tick and how I'm going to help them, but I want to maintain that stance of curiosity because that will lead me to the good data. I think that's a great point. You know, the, the big data versus small data was a super interesting section. And if you have not read the chapters yet, I highly recommend like taking a moment to think about that. Cause I think you're right, Mark. I think we're inundated with big data and we're very disconnected from it. And when we think about those small data, those tiny clues, like there's a lot of powerful learning and curiosity that can be there for both the student and the teacher. And it makes me think about this idea of like, you know, as companies, they talk about this, that 
companies have a prevention focus or um, a promotion focus. Like they're either cautiously fixated on preventing all these problems or they're really encouraging innovation and new ideas. And I think part of what we get stuck in is that we're really trying to do this prevention. We're trying to fixate on preventing any more errors. Like we look at our students as like these pieces of data and we're like, mm -hmm. do not fall into the bad zone on that data. Like I cannot let you get, you know, like have to prevent errors. You cannot sleep down into that red or the orange or whatever color coding system you have um, that, that we worry about that endlessly as opposed to fixating all of our attention on encouraging innovation and new ideas. And if we were looking at those tiny data points, perhaps we'd be doing the other. You know, we would say like, I never thought about doing that approach to kicking a soccer ball or to building a table, but it works. Right. How come? Does it always work? And all of a sudden yeah. we're in curiosity and innovation instead of, you know, very carefully follow every step that we've laid out so that you don't become accidentally an error. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a great point. Great point, Audrey. Well, we've already started talking about some of these practical things that we can think about um, because, you know, as we as we engage in these podcasts, Audrey, I think our goal is always to have discussion about how are the practical ways this could impact coaches and teachers um, in schools. And one of the things that um, as we get into the practical stuff is, you know, I this this kind of like what not to do type of a thing, uh, I just thought was a great uh, point by the author is like, can you imagine if uh, I'm a leader at a school and I, I walk into a staff meeting and say, okay, everybody get ready to be curious. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure that might be the, the best sort of way to kick things off. Um, and, and instead that the author gives a really nice uh, series of questions that you can actually guide um, a group of people with. And the questions are, why did you become an educator or leader? What is your biggest hope for your students? And we believe our classroom or school should be a place where, and there's this, this really nice vision work that they've laid, that the author has laid out in that chapter that I think is really nice to think about in terms of how we get back to sort of our why as educators. What did you think about some of that, Audrey? Yeah, I, I I think it's absolutely right on on point. You know, the idea of starting your journey with a moral purpose is the way to peak curiosity. Like that fits absolutely in line. Like get back to the heart of why you're a teacher. Get back to the heart of why you're into coaching and leading teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and so I agree with you. I think the protocol that they put forth with those questions on page 97, it's just a really practical tool for getting back to that if you are finding that the school you're working with or the teachers in your team that you've lost sight of curiosity, that those would be a great way to get back to, um, to the heart of it. They, they also talk about focusing in on uh, bright spots. Mm -hmm. And I thought that, you know, that comes from other folks work as well, but that like, you can look at your own campus and say like, it is not devoid of all curiosity. Like there's curiosity happening here, but it might not be widespread. It might not be to the, to the, you know, the amounts that you want to see it kind of all flowing all over campus. So look for the places where curiosity is and investigate, ask what's working, what caused that to happen? What, what promoted it? what do you think about the bright spots conversation? Well, I, I, I love those questions that the author provided. And what I did right now, Audrey, is I thought about them in terms of mathematics because the author uh, presents them as, as generalist questions. So uh, how about I read them and we think about them in terms of mathematics. Um, when, our, when are our students curious during math instruction? What math topics make them curious? 
And the third question is, what kind of math learning activities spark and sustain their curiosity? So Audrey, as I pop in the word math into those questions, anything come to mind for you? You know what's interesting, Mark, is that it's so much easier for me to answer when are they not curious and when are they not, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. and I, and I think that that's probably just indicative of the systemic way in our, in our system that we aren't curious in math often. Mm. Um, but it, like when students are asking questions, when they care to know, when they have some autonomy over like making some decisions about what mm. they're investigating, like all of those instances, I think of the places um, where, where kids are curious when um, I think play has a lot to do with it when they're um, when there's less structure set up for them and there's more leeway for them to do things um, those definitely come come to mind yeah I agree with you I think that that point that we've made before in other uh, podcasts is that that maximizing of decisions the amount of decisions made I think is is a really good indicator um, the other thing I thought about that second question what math topics make them curious I, I sort of flashed to the idea of the difference between fun and curious. And I think sometimes as educators, we think about, well, what math activities are fun for students um, versus this idea of curiosity. And I think they're different. You certainly have fun when you're being curious, but I think it's really good to push on us to think about like, when are kids actually engaged in curiosity versus it just being something enjoyable for them? So I think it's probably good to grapple with that. I agree. And, you know, that's a great segue into the thinking about teachers and professional learning, because another tool of practical tool is engaging teachers in inquiry driven professional learning that this idea that teachers need for themselves, the curiosity sparks um, and sustained curiosity investigations in order to do that for their students. And to that end, like, it's, again, it's not about can I make the best fun for my teachers? Um, can I put this in a, in a light where they're laughing and, and enjoying themselves and, you know, filling themselves with good food and candy and all the things that we throw at them, right? Um, money would be great too, but, you know, we won't go there today. But I think that at the heart of it, it's like teachers have to be engaged in that curious work too. So like, how do we open up an opportunity for them to say like, this is what I'm curious about in my, as a teacher, I don't know if this is possible. I don't know if this could happen and let me investigate it. And as we do that in our own professional learning with teachers, that then helps them um, do the same with their students. Yeah, that's a great point, Audrey. Although I have to say, I was just a little distracted by your candy comment because I did show <laughs> up to a professional learning I was leading once without the candy. And let me just tell you, it was not a pretty sight. <laughs> you only make that mistake once. <laughs> but, you know, maybe if I would have shown up with a little more curiosity that was baked into the work that I was doing with them, I may not have needed the I, I think I still would have needed the candy. But, um, you know, it, this is such a great point to think about this in terms of professional learning, Audrey. Um, I think that one of the things that I think is it, we have to figure out how to unlock is this idea of um, as educators, sometimes we just have this feeling we want to be left alone to what we need to do, right? Um, you know, we know all the jokes about meetings and professional learning, you know, ever since we've been at different schools and it's still the, the case is that um, if you ask teachers, would you rather go to professional learning? Or would you rather work in your classroom? It's not usually a close vote. But so like, why is that so broken? Like, how can we make sure that teachers engage in professional learning that is part of their curiosity? Because then if it was aligned that way, Audrey, right, it would be something that they could experience joy 
and that curiosity would be the vehicle to get to them to that joy. So it's like we're in this cycle of just sort of not not getting off of this 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 circle that we're running through. And um, any any thoughts around that? Yeah, I you know it, it's interesting that you're talking about that because it's it's true that we we kind of get the system that we've created. So we're not mm -hmm. very curious. Mm -hmm. So let me stay in my classroom. Let me have my own little you know, kingdom in here and do what I need to do yeah. to get by. But then in doing so, I become less curious. Um, and, and so I think, I think we have to challenge ourselves to ask the what if question, to challenge the status quo, to look, um, to be both inspired by others and to be inspiring to others. Mm. Um, and that um, we're not encouraging dissent for the sake of dissent, but that we know status quo isn't meeting the needs of all students yet. So, right we can do better we just have to figure out how to do better and so i think we need to invite those questions into our space um, and be a little more willing to engage in that kind of dialogue yeah for sure for sure well as we close out this episode because we're almost out of time what are you still grappling with or what is still lingering in your mind what do you not want to leave without without saying yeah you know one thing that i'm still grappling with is the author has this positioning of as a leader, you should demonstrate this curiosity because then that way, um, the people that you're leading will be able to follow you and engage in that also. But I, I like to stay practical as I'm reading the book. And as a classroom teacher, I could see a lot of instances where I could say to myself, well, in my environment, in my school, there's not a lot of encouragement to be curious. Um, and so I, I think it's really important for us to think about in whatever level we find ourselves currently, that the author's making really strong case for curiosity. And it doesn't mean that I have to be at a certain particular level of, of, of positionality to, to say, this is something that I can engage in and I can influence others and I can certainly influence the students in my classroom regarding this. So that's something that I'm continually thinking about. You know, on a parallel trajectory from there, I'm stuck thinking about this idea that they talk about when organizations fill their ranks with curious people, mm -hmm. that you have this number of winning ideas or the ide ideation rate goes way up, which matches an increase in profit or success for however you're measuring it for your own system. Mm -hmm. um, and the ideas don't actually have to be ideas that work. Like a winning idea doesn't mean something that actually becomes like a product or you know, an innovation in your system, but just that you're ideating a large number of ideas and they quantify it down to like the number of ideas per thousand of people and, and all that. And it made me think about like what happens similar to what you said when your system does not have an abundance of curiosity, right? Does that mean that if you want to kind of build it, you need to start with that ideation and kind of like take the hose of ideation and whatever like the little knob is and just turn that <laughs> dial all the way up and just mm -hmm. start like start flooding the system a little bit with these ideas. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know if that's true. So I'm, this is a wondering, this is a curiosity moment of my own. Like what would happen if that was the case on a mm. campus or in a department, if there's not a lot of curiosity, if a few people or a small number of people kind of unleash ideation, does that start to stem the tide towards more people asking what if questions, which then builds a bigger and bigger pool of curiosity from which to like, you know, grow. So I don't know. I think there's something there um, with what you're saying too, is like, 
I, I don't always have control over who my colleagues are. I don't always have control over who my boss is. Mm -hmm. um, I rarely do, right? And so like, how instead do I think about my impact on the system in terms of me being as curious as possible and how that might impact others in that way? Yeah, really cool. You've got me thinking about this unleashing this, this hose of curiosity. So um, thanks so much, Audrey. Really, really interesting stuff. Folks, thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about part four, Curious at Heart, which is chapters 10 through 12. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes on staying curious. Mm -hmm.